Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Hello and welcome back. Thank you, as always, so much for listening. I have taken a break for the last few weeks and I didn't have any guests scheduled, so you got to listen to um, some replays of an entire episode and then I hope you checked out the best of episode. And um, today's topic, David Chapin of Forma Life Science Marketing is going to be talking about archetypes and how they can be used not only to differentiate your company and your brand, but also in a really powerful way for internal alignment. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation very much. And you should know that David is going to be speaking at the ACPLS annual meeting in October in Philadelphia. That's on October 20th and 21st. There's a pre-meeting training day with some special sessions on the 19th. You should definitely check that out. Go to acp-ls.org slash annual dash meeting. All right, let's jump right into the interview with David, shall we? Today, I'm very happy to have David Chapin on the program. David is the CEO of Forma Life Science Marketing. We'll be talking about company archetypes and how they can be used as a tool for internal alignment, which is probably a great first step that will help with your marketing efforts, but also a lot more than that. David, welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio. Chris, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, this is going to be a good one. Um, First of all, please explain for the audience, whoever's listening, what do you mean by an archetype and can you give some examples? Yeah, great question. What do I mean by an archetype? Archetypes are common character types that we see in stories, in myths, in culture. Examples include the detective, the hero, the jester, the scientists, but there are thousands of archetypes including many that we'd never want to use in business, <laughs> such as the sloth, the mean girl, the evil dictator, the bully. We all recognize examples of archetypes. Luke Skywalker is an example of a hero. Dana Scully from The X-Files or Olivia Benson from Law & Order are examples of the detective. Einstein and Neil deGrasse Tyson are, of course, examples of scientists. When we come across a new character or a person, how do we know what archetype they are? We recognize the patterns of their attributes. For example, heroes are strong, courageous, self-sacrificing. Heroes frequently undergo some sort of transformation, and they can be arrogant. If you saw a character or even a company that exhibited these attributes, you'd understand that they're exhibiting many of the characteristics of the hero, and you'd expect them also to have the other characteristics of the hero, like stamina or a strong sense of faith, because all of this goes together. You expect the pattern to be complete, and so you complete the pattern in your own mind. People were pattern-matching animals. People are wired to recognize patterns of attributes and then to complete that pattern, even if it's based on incomplete information. That's what makes archetypes so powerful. You see, the audience completes the pattern for us. And when audiences do this, they're actually doing some of our marketing work for us. They're completing the pattern so that we don't have to. Uh, Archetypes got their start in the study of culture, but 
they were brought into marketing in the late 90s, early 2000s by some of the members of Young and Rubicam, famous ad agency. Right. Um, I love the whole concept, which I hadn't really thought of, but makes total sense about completing the pattern. Um, of course, people do that. And um, I've recently been thinking about talking more about audio content in which um, <clears throat> I went to a conference last week and Alex Bloomberg, who you may know from This American Life, talks about how with audio content, you complete the pattern. If you hadn't seen a picture of him, you fill that in in your head. And and uh, <clears throat> and so that's and that's a powerful thing because now it's something inside of you talking to you. That's exactly right. And you believe it more because it comes from inside. In fact, there's a wonderful t term called apophenia, which means the condition in which you m see meaning or see a pattern when there actually is no pattern there. For example, you look up into the sky and you see the shape of an elephant. Well, we all know there's no elephant in the sky. There's the Virgin Mary isn't in the piece of toast or yes. the grain of wood. But we have this pattern matching ability. And in fact, you could argue that all life is pattern seeking. Viruses are looking for the pattern to which they can attach and infect a cell. So all life is pattern matching, is pattern seeking. And we can harness this in marketing and in communicating and aligning our employees to help achieve our goals. Right. Uh, I love that. So let's, let's talk, how can archetypes be used? Um, let's first just generally both internally and externally, and then we'll dig in on one side of that, but go ahead and talk about how they can be used by a company. Yeah. So archetypes have many uses and many benefits. If you're going to use archetypes in marketing, some of the external benefits include a clear articulation of what the company stands for, a consistent personality, clear expression and tone of voice, and then audiences recognize and resonate with our archetype if we've picked it well, which means that they see us as differentiated. And this will drive pricing power and profit. Now, that's a really bold claim, isn't it, that archetypes can drive pricing power and profit. But the employees of Young and Rubicam in the late 90s and early 2000s, they actually looked at 50 very large organizations. And they found that organizations that picked and stuck with a single archetype were actually more profitable than organizations that either didn't have an archetype or varied that archetype over time. Now, those are some of the external benefits, but internally, archetypes also have many uses and many benefits. Again, you get clear articulation of what you stand for. You get a consistent personality. You get clear expression and tone of voice. And you get better decision-making because we're empowering our employees to make decisions using the archetype as a touchstone or a pole star. And this will bring alignment of the entire employee base. And that last one is measurable. We've actually done some interesting work measuring alignment of employee groups around archetypes. So archetypes have many benefits, both internal and external. So I think um, the uses for branding are probably for, for this audience, 
pretty well, at least um, I won't say they're doing it, but they can they can see how that can be beneficial. And I'm hoping uh, in the future we can do a whole separate episode of this podcast on that because I think um, that would be very helpful. Um, today I'm curious um, about how companies can use these archetypes as an internal tool and as you say as a touchstone because I, you know, I've read some of your stuff and when you talk about companies and their mission statements and their values, most people can't recite them, let alone use them to guide decisions. So you mentioned it a little bit, but what kinds of problems can you solve company-wide with an archetype and how do you know when it's working? Yeah, great questions. There are lots of benefits, internal benefits to using archetypes. And one of the biggest is that archetypes align employee behavior. For example, let's say we picked an archetype for our organization, I don't know, a detective. Well, then we'd, in, then we'd want to train our employees that this was our archetype, the detective. And specifically, we'd explain that there is a very small, focused set of attributes that come along with this archetype. Now, I'll take a brief aside there. You think about the detective, there are lots and lots of attributes of the detective, right? Um, all of them tend to be curious. Some of them use more brute force. Some of them are more sophisticated. And when you start to actually write that down, the word cloud that you get is pretty big. So we have to narrow that down for our employees and pick a finite number of those attributes. And we make it clear to, the, to our employees we make it clear to our employees that we expect them to behave according to these attributes. And we could set up systems that allow and encourage employees to recognize the proper behavior in others and reward them for us, reward them for that proper behavior. In this way, rather than trying to police behavior from above, we're deputizing our employees to help protect our organization. And there's a famous example. Look at VW, right? There was a small group of people internally that was gaming the software that was used for emissions inspection. And I bet that when the historians go and write the business case, study by future business school students, we'll find out that some employees knew what was happening and said nothing. Sure. That's, that's a textbook case of misalignment. We've got to deputize all our employees to help protect our organization. And archetypes are a powerful way to do that. When they're used correctly, archetypes provide clarity of what we stand for, common expectations for our employees' behavior, alignment of actions, goals, and objectives, and clear communication. Right. So I said I wouldn't get into the branding side of it, but I have to, on that note, I have to bring it up because, and I'm sure you see this as well, that you know companies that have a brand police, which is a, a very effort-intensive way of ensuring your at least even visual branding, let alone anything else. Um, and I guess I just want to comment, or you could comment about how this might save a lot of effort if people understood this archetype of your brand and sort of police themselves and point out to each other, hey, that isn't the way we would say this. Chris, that's, ex that's exactly right, right? The brand police came from the late 80s, the 90s, and it was an attempt to try to control 
the growing number of channels and avenues of expression because Marketing 101 says you want to be consistent. Look, we all – everyone is facing this barrage of noise in the environment. Marketing messages are coming at us from all sides. And so what do we do? We develop these noise-canceling filters in our heads to try to keep out the din. And so to cut through those noise-canceling filters, we've got to be clear and consistent. And so consistency is part of marketing's fundamental toolkit. And archetypes help drive consistency because we can either try to impose consistency from above – which means that no communication can happen unless it's been through the brand police. Well, today, that's impossible, right? Everybody's got a Twitter feed. Everybody's got a Facebook page. Everybody can, can say basically whatever they want out loud on the internet. And so we can't impose it from above. We've got to get our employees to help monitor others' behavior and help Everyone head in the same direction. And that's one of the values that archetypes can bring. And, and I put all of that under the giant title of employee alignment. It's not only alignment in what we say, but in how we say it. Right. Um, yeah, I love that. I mean, uh, you see it. I mean, in my experience, the brand police situation happens more in larger companies and they're the very ones who are already slow by nature and they're adding one more thing to slow them down. So exactly. the, this is a place where they can get some of that advantage back by implementing an archetype. Um, can you point out some examples of companies that have an easily identifiable archetype, even if it's not within the life sciences? Yeah, there are lots of examples of easily identifiable archetypes. One of the big benefits of archetypes, particularly from an external view, is the differentiation they provide. So archetypes are most often seen, and in fact, in marketing, they were first seen in sectors where differentiation is really difficult, such as consumer goods. Look at Coke and Pepsi. The difference really isn't inside the bottle. The difference is really outside the bottle. The same is true for toothpaste and laundry detergent for your, for your clothes. The difference really isn't inside the tube or inside the bottle. It's outside the bottle. Archetypes showed up there as a way to clarify what you stand for and how you express it. And so if we look at some of those consumer products, Chick-fil-A – it's a jester brand, right? They're using clumsy, inventive <laughs> cows to yeah. invite you to join in the fun. And Wendy's, on the other hand, goes to market as an everyman, which is part of the citizen family of archetypes. Nike is a hero brand. Their call to just do it is a call, as Shakespeare said, to screw your courage to the sticking point. It's a call to conquer your own limitations, to conquer your competitors, it's a call to be a hero. REI, they sell much the same equipment that Nike does, but they go to market as an explorer. Their call is to go find paradise. In B2B life sciences, the use of archetypes is very, very young. And this actually means that companies that choose an archetype now will have a wider choice of archetypes than companies that wait because you don't want to choose an archetype that's exactly the same as your competitor because, in fact, 
that would be non-differentiating. Right. And you don't want the leftovers either. That's, a, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So another example is um, everyone will recognize this one is GE with their tagline, Imagination at Work. They're going to market as an innovator, and they've done that for years. So there are lots of examples. And once you start to tune into this, it's not hard to see. All right. Um, I love those examples you, you've given in, particularly where, you know, for example, the REI versus Nike, where they do sell similar things, but they've picked different archetypes. And uh, with GE, who's already done this and been doing it for years. Um, so when we talk about the advantage of doing this, if I'm a company, someone in a company listening, what does it take for a company to develop an archetype? How do you go about picking smartly what your archetype should be? Yeah, it's um, it is not a trivial process. Archetypes are similar to a marketing position, that thing that you stand for. You don't want to change it every week, every month, every quarter, every year. In fact, you want to think about the lifespan of an archetype or of a position in measured in decades. So, five things that organizations must possess to effectively implement archetypes. First, organizations need courage. You need a clear sense of what you stand for and why you're different and better. So in marketing speak, you need a unique position. And if your position is going to be unique, you have to have the courage to say no to the pressure to try and be all things to all people. So to implement archetypes successfully, you need courage. And second, you need to have creativity. You need creativity to select and articulate your specific archetype. And this is really difficult for most organizations, in part because they don't have a lot of experience or practice doing this. It's hard for organizations to see their own situation clearly, to put it a little more colloquially. It's hard to read the label from inside the jar. <laughs> to make archetypes successful, you need creativity. And then you need clarity. You think about the detective archetype, right? We already talked about the fact that there are dozens of examples. Sherlock Holmes is hyper-rational. Dirty Harry uses much more brute force. And you have to define your archetype very, very clearly because what you stand for and how you articulate it has to be simple enough and memorable enough so that all employees can internalize it and behave consistent with that archetype. So to implement archetypes successfully, you need clarity. Fourth, you need commitment. Your choice of archetype has to be long-lasting. you got to pick one and stick to it. Having a different archetype every year is much worse than having no archetype. And training your employees in what your archetype is and what you stand for is not a one-and-done affair. To make archetypes successful, you need commitment. And last, you need consistency. Getting through to audiences is really hard, whether we're talking about internal or external audiences. Look, they're focused on their own challenges, and there's just so much noise in the environment that it's really hard to cut through. So to cut through those noise-canceling filters, we have to be consistent. To summarize, to choose an archetype successfully, you need to have five things. Courage, creativity, clarity, commitment, and consistency. Nice. So how do you recommend um, that a company get started to really make this stick? I mean, you've said what it takes to 
develop it, but what does it take to get started? How does someone, first of all, make the case, and then um, what does it take inside the company to make sure that this is actually going to happen? That's a great question. How should organizations get started with archetypes? Well, you need to understand that every sector in the life sciences has common archetypes. These are almost the de facto choices. For example, instrument companies often use the tone of voice of the innovator, as in we're leading the pack, or the engineer. Oh, we build great instruments. And service companies in the life sciences, like labs, they often use the tone of voice of the scientist, we know how to run experiments, or the caregiver, we'll take good care of your data. And these sector-defining choices should be avoided because they're so non-differentiating. So if you're going to choose an archetype, you have to understand what the common sector-defining archetypes are so that you don't choose the wrong one. And organizations have to understand that all archetypes have negative parts of the pattern called the shadow. The shadow is that collection of negative attributes. Part of the shadow of the scientist is the tendency to focus so much on the details that you miss the larger meaning. That's just part of the scientist archetype. You can't ignore it. And so you have to make plans to deal with it. And so when you're implementing an archetype, you have to take the shadow into account so that you don't choose an archetype whose shadow can, as it were, come back and bite you. And organizations shouldn't pick a standard archetype. I'll say that again because right. that's so important. Organizations shouldn't pick a standard archetype, period. Many meaning, creative – Sorry, meaning the, oh, sci no. the scientist or the innovator because of those are kind of the default go-to – uh, that, that's one interpretation of, of that. That's correct. The other way to think about it is, um, well, let me tell you how other creative services firms implement archetypes. Okay. They'll, they'll try to describe an organization by using a combination of archetypes. Oh, you're a primary caregiver with two smaller wings, a concierge and a sage. And that's crazy, right? That's so muddled. That your internal audiences won't know how to behave, and therefore right. they won't know how to talk about themselves. And what's that going to mean? That means that your external audiences are going to be totally confused. So if you're going to pick an archetype, what we do with our organizations is we pick a general archetype like the caregiver or the concierge or the sage or the scientist. And, and then we customize the set of attributes that for that organization – this archetype will represent. So it's not a uncustomized archetype. You, you shouldn't pick an archetype that is, oh, we're just going to be the scientist or we're just going to be the detective. You have to localize and narrow the set of attributes because each archetype is really so complex, a set of attributes, that it's, it's too complex for employees to internalize. For example, if all I said was, well, we're going to be the detective, then some people might think, oh, well, I'm Dirty Harry, so I get to go around and sort of brute force my way through problems. Whereas someone else might think, oh, I'm Miss Marple or Hercule Poirot, and 
I can um, finesse my way through issues. And those are two very different kinds of behaviors. What we need to do is we need to come together and have a single understanding. And that has to come from the leadership team. The leadership team has to drive the adoption of an archetype. This is not a choice that's layered on top like a coat of paint, right? When archetypes are imp implemented correctly, they affect the culture, they affect hiring, they affect employee behavior, they affect lots of things within an organization. They're powerful. We've got data that show that they can bring employee alignment, but like all, all powerful tools, they can do as much harm as good. Is there... Um is there any customer input into, you know, how you're already seen? So something that might help someone align themselves with their customers' existing impressions rather than – I'm fascinated by the whole idea and I completely understand not picking the scientist or the innovator. But then the, the set of choices is so wide and so many interesting, attractive things. You just say, I want to be Columbo or <laughs> whatever right. it is, right? And right. But how do you how do you start to narrow the idea and and do customers you know could you ask customers some things and then get some ideas well they're sort of seeing us like this how can we amplify that characteristic? Yes, um, and um, that's a really great question. And so when we help organizations pick archetypes, not only do we talk to customers and find out what attributes they ascribe to a particular organization, but we also talk to employees. Now, you have to be careful because just because employees say, oh, we see ourselves as the sage, that doesn't mean you should be the sage. That's a little like asking your kids, what do you want for dinner? And the three-year-old <laughs> says, well, I want ice cream. Well, you know, that you don't get ice cream until after dinner. Ice cream is dessert. So – so we, f we do find out what customers think and we do find out what employees think, but that's, that's a backward-looking assessment. Okay. And marketing is a forward-looking activity. So you don't want to let the past drive or control excessively where you're going in the future. The classic example is mergers and acquisitions. Yesterday, we were this company. <laughs> yeah. Now, all of a sudden, we're bigger and we have the chance to be different. So looking backward is fine. But you have to understand that what you're doing is you're driving down the road looking in the rearview mirror. The chance for catastrophe is high. So really what you need to do is you need to not look backwards. You need to not look at where you are, i.e. down at your feet. You need to lift your eyes and look out at the horizon because that's where marketing can take you. And marketing is not typically the kind of activity that brings immediate results, i.e. measured in minutes. Marketing is the trying to win the mind share of your audience. And that doesn't happen overnight. So, this, so you need to take the long view. That's why content marketing is so important, right? right. Because it's, oh, yeah. long, it's the long view. Well, I love that long view, obviously, as a content marketer. I also uh, like the idea of you know, looking out to the horizon. So is the, is the choice really that wide open if I'm a company and I, and I don't want to do the backward-looking thing at what do my employees and customers say about me? Uh, I really have the whole – well, 
a large section of the menu available for me to pick along with some strategy about, you know, how we want to conduct ourselves in the future. And, uh, and yes, yes. The, the choice is in essence wide open and there are really two parts to that choice. Now we are fond of labels, right? We're marketers. And so we talk about the detective, but you could define the detective in a dozen different ways. And what would make them different isn't at the top level, the level of the name. What makes them different is the collection of attributes that you assign to them. And so the name is less important than the collection of attributes. Now, it's very convenient to have a name because that enables employees to use shorthand with each other. Hey, Joe, I saw you acting as the caregiver. That's our archetype. Good for you. I'm putting you on, in for a, a part of this employee recognition program, and, and you're going to get a Starbucks gift card. Those kind of programs can be really effective in helping employees police, monitor and police each other's behavior. And I bet VW wish they had spent a little money on that rather than the $15 billion they're going to have wow. to pay just in the U.S. to take care of this issue. Ouch, yeah. Right? Yeah, so, so, the, so the name is important, but what is more important is the, the shared understanding of what that collection of attributes is, and the name is a shorthand pointer to that shared understanding. Right. Well, David, this whole thing has been absolutely fascinating, and I'm, I'm honestly I'm really excited to, just to learn uh, – for my purposes or anyone's purposes, it, what really I really like is that this is a wide open choice because differentiating is hard. And and I might have thought before this conversation that you know there were right choices and wrong choices for any company, but it sounds like it's more about making a choice and sticking to it, and then and making that happen. That's correct. It's about making a choice and sticking to it. But of course, the choice has to be made very carefully. Right. You you can choose something that's that's really that's just plain wrong. Sure. So so um, archetypes for a while in marketing they were the flavor du jour. They were the the quick thing that people would would latch onto, and then a year later they were they were gone. I think the way archetypes can be used and the way we're using them with our employees, we're following up with measurement. And so we're seeing the increase in uptake among employee groups. And that's really changing the culture of a company. And that, I think, is where marketing can be most powerful. Right. So I really appreciate the opportunity to, to come on your, your podcast Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. So where can someone go, uh, whoever's listening, where can that person go to learn more about this? So there are a couple of places that I can point you to. Um, uh, first is our website, yep. www.formalifesciencemarketing.com. That's a long one, but it's really good for SEO. And secondly, you can uh, take a look at my book, Making the Complex Compelling, Creating High-Performance Marketing in the Life Sciences. It's available on Amazon. Chapter 10, I believe, is about archetypes. Okay. I will put links to both of those in the show notes. And once again, thanks very much for joining us. Chris, thank you so much for the opportunity. My, Best of luck. My pleasure. Wow. Do you think 
an archetype would be helpful for your own marketing and uh, your internal alignment. I just love the whole idea, and there's an element of creativity to it that I really appreciate. And, of course, the, the benefits of how you differentiate yourself from your customers as well as get internal alignment about your your company culture. I think this is a fantastic thing. I'm sure it takes some effort to implement, but like many things in marketing, if you take the long-term view and you think something out really well in advance, everything else you do after that can be so much more actually easier and more effective. And I think that's where the real value lies is over the long haul. Um, if you like the podcast, please tell two friends. Um, check out the ACPLS. Here's a cool story about the ACPLS. I'm a fresh MBA. I'm going to give a shout out to Maxwell. Called me up last week and he listened to the podcast and he asked me, you know, he asked me a question about how to get started in a certain area. I don't want to give away too many details, but um, I was able to put him in touch with some really smart people at the ACPLS, and that's all just because we're building this network. And he reached out to me, and um, a guy who's been very successful with a number of startups and other larger companies said, yeah, I'd be happy to talk to him. That's the value of the network. And um, a lot of it comes from you know me meeting people on this podcast Really appreciate the calls and the feedback. And uh, if I didn't say it already, tell two of your friends, and I will talk to you in a couple of weeks. Bye bye.